Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis and a warm welcome to Money Talk for Thursday the 18th of May. Just a reminder that you can also find this programme on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. If you go to my website, which is peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, you'll find all the links to your favourite podcast apps there. And this programme is also on Facebook, Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page, and I'm on Twitter at moneytalkr 3 This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, President Joe Biden has scrapped planned visits to Australia and Papua New Guinea due to take place after Japan's G7 meeting to return to the US to help resolve the debt crisis. He said shortly before departing for the summit that he was confident of reaching a deal with Congress to avoid an unprecedented default on US debt. Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy said, I think at the end of the day, we don't have a debt default. I think we finally got the president to agree to negotiate. Japan's economy has expanded for the first time in three quarters. GDP grew by 0.4% quarter on quarter in the first three months of 2023, after showing no growth in Q4. This was the fastest pace of expansion since the second quarter of 2022, with private consumption rising the most in three quarters following the removal of all pandemic measures. China's home price growth slowed in April. The average price of a new home in 70 medium and large cities in mainland China rose 0.3% in April, slowing from March's 0.4%, while lived-in home prices were flat versus a 0.3% increase in March. On an annualised basis, home prices in China's 70 major cities dropped by 0.2% year-on-year in April. That was the 12th straight month of decrease in new home prices, but the softest pace in a year. Tencent's earnings bounced back in the first quarter as it reported the fastest jump in revenue in more than a year following China's reopening. Quarterly revenue climbed 11% year-on-year to 150 billion Chinese yuan, that's 21.4 billion US dollars. Profits attributable to shareholders rose 10% year-on-year to 3.7 billion US dollars. Tencent said its gaming business benefited from a return to growth in domestic game sales. International gaming sales for the first quarter grew 25%, while the domestic division saw a gain of 6%. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Société Générale Corporate and Investment Banking. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. U.S. stocks advanced on Wednesday as investors grew more confident the White House would reach a deal with Congress to avoid a government debt default. The S&P 500 gained 1.2% to 4,159. The Dow closed 409 points higher, or 1.2%, at 33,421. The Nasdaq Composite advanced 1.3% to 12,501. Shares in U.S. regional banks rallied after lender Western Alliance reported deposits grew by $2 billion in the second quarter. The KBW Regional Banking Index gained 7.3% on the day. In Japan, stocks rose to a new 33-year high. The Topics Index added 0.3%, taking it to the highest level since August 1990. The Nikkei 225 rose 0.8% to 30,094. That's the highest since November 2021. And that takes its gains for the year to 15.3%, making it the best-performing major equity index in Asia in 2023 so far. 
Chinese shares fell Wednesday following the disappointing economic data from the mainland the previous day. The Hang Seng Index in Hong Kong tumbled 418 points, or 2.1%, to 19,561. That's a 12-week low. The Tech Index slumped 2.2%. Tencent was down 0.6% ahead of its earnings release later in the day. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index dropped 2.2%. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite declined 0.2% to 3,284. But futures markets are pointing to a rebound. They're showing a gain of about 0.8% for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. And elsewhere in the markets, the US dollar rose to a seven-week high. The yield on the two-year Treasury notes traded at a three-week high. And oil and copper soared on hopes of a resolution to the US debt ceiling standoff. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And on this Thursday morning, let's welcome our regular commentator, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us is Michelle Lamb, who is Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. Morning to you, Michelle. Good morning, Peter. Um, let's start with the uh, the data that we had from China earlier this week. Yesterday, in fact, it broadly missed expectations and added to some concerns that the economic recovery is losing momentum following the relaxation, uh, relaxation of zero COVID restrictions. The National Bureau of Statistics said the global environment is still complex and grim and domestic demand still looks insufficient. The economy's internal driver for rebound is still not strong, it said. Um, so, Andrew, before we get into all the details of retail sales and industrial production and so on, what, what were your overall thoughts about it? The markets, from an investment perspective anyway, or investors, seem to be a bit disappointed about it. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm afraid I'll start by, by, by two points. One is... Uh, I'm afraid, in general, I disregard expectations, particularly when they are frustrated. Okay, well, all right, so they're frustrated, so tough. Uh, the second point is, is uh, to look at the figures as usual with a low base effect. And I'm afraid the, the, the first read looks all right, but it isn't. Retail sales, 18.4% in April, year on year, going back to the same month last year, was the worst performance of retail sales right through the period of the COVID. It was minus 11.1%. So, of course, it's a very low base effect. Mm. Ditto with industrial output. It was not as bad a year ago, but it was still a minus 2.9%. So this increases uh, effectively pretty meaningless unless somehow we begin to project them out of uh, the low base effect. Uh, the finance, the fixed investment was not bad in the sense that uh, there wasn't really a low base effect because same year, last year, it was 6.8% plus. So that was okay. Uh, and of course, youth unemployment uh, significantly up for specific reasons. And that is mm. politically bad mm. as opposed to just economically bad. So overall, no, these are poor numbers. So, Michelle, when we to try and remove this base effect that Andrew was talking about, is it better to look at these month-on-month numbers? Because when we do, um, it, it's slowing, isn't it? On a month-on-month basis, retail sales grew, what was it, 0.49% in April, slowed from 0.78% in March. So uh, are they more significant, do you think? 
I think overall the data tells you that apart from services, uh, everything was slowing down in April. And of course, it's, it's, uh, well, the preferred measure is to look at the month-on-month data seasonally adjusted. But um, actually, the National Bureau of Statistics, uh, for most of the data, they do not publish that. So you have to do the seasonal adjustment yourself. Mm. And when we do that yourself, I think the more surprise, uh, surprising data, I think, is the, actually the industrial production. Um, on the month, you saw that actually it dropped by uh, 0.5%, uh, which was actually quite unprecedented. I think the last time it happened was uh, last year in the, in the fourth quarter when we have the COVID, uh, COVID-related lockdowns. Um, so it's actually quite puzzling why we saw a sort of sudden stop in the industrial production momentum. And then I think apart from, the, of course, the external demand is softening. I think it's probably that um, the domestic demand were also not very strong. Um, if you look at the import data for April, for example, there are actually some slowdown uh, in the commodity imports. Mm. Um, so I think probably um, the, well, first of all, the property investment was not picking up uh as strong as the sales. And second, I think the consumer goods demand uh, are also not as strong as as the services momentum. And there are probably still some uh, inventory effect going on that has affected the momentum in the industrial sector. So all in all, I think the weakness in the domestic demand is still an issue. So they're probably arguing that the policymakers may need to do more to Mm. support the economy. Andrew, how is it that in China we have low interest rates and and one of the few um, central banks, maybe apart from Japan in the world, that hasn't been raising them? We're getting stimulus month after month, aren't we? Sometimes it's record monthly amounts of stimulus, but yet you still get this data that that maybe is lackluster at best. What what's happening to all this all this stimulus that's uh, that's going into the in the economy? Is it not having the effect that uh, that they want? Well, famously, Chinese monetary policy has never been aggressive, and they have repeatedly said they were not planning to do so. Okay, In the last year and a half, we had mostly decreases in reserve requirements as opposed to decreases in interest rates. The decreases in interest rates have been uh, small and far between. Uh, so, of course, by encouraging the banks to lend, does not necessarily mean that they lend, or at mm-hmm. least they lend in the appropriate sector. All right, in inverted commas. And the second point is, is uh, they are, I think they are necessarily concerned or cautious on uh, fiscal policy because their fiscal deficit has always been historically very low as a percentage of, uh, of GDP. They have a huge external surplus, okay, but an enormous external surplus. In other words, China is a net lender to the world. And uh, net lenders to the world never go bankrupt domestically. In other words, they could spend a lot more money domestically and do it now. But they are very, very cautious over that. Because once again, they don't want to see investment driving the economy. They will try, they will prefer to see if something could happen on the domestic, on the pure domestic consumption demand side. And it's not happening. And my final point is this shows, and I'm afraid I cannot measure that, uh, how massively the two and a half years of lockdown actually uh, hit the economy. It looks as if uh, it is staggering out of the corner, still punch drunk of, of two and a half years of very hard graft. You, can't, you, cannot, you cannot measure that. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm just saying it uh, expectationally, no more than that, yeah. 
I mean, Michelle, this is, is a good point, isn't it, that Andrew's making? This, this growth data, it shows just how difficult it is to keep growth going, even after you've turned the engine back on, after it was turned off, basically, for, for two and a half years, as, as Andrew said, because of the, the COVID crisis. And, and I presume the risk is that this could all run out of steam very quickly, isn't it? Particularly if the consumer starts losing confidence and you have all these unemployed people in the, in the, uh, in the younger um, sector. There's a real risk that this could all tail off very quickly, do you think? Um, yeah, actually, I'd, uh, I pretty much agree with uh, Andrew's point about uh, the loss of confidence um, and I think we've, I think increasing, increasingly, I think the risk to me is that we enter a situation much like uh, Japan uh, falling into a liquidity trap that no matter uh, how much, uh, um, okay, interest rate cuts that uh, the PBOC can do, you still fail to revive the confidence uh, of the private sector. And just because uh, over the last three years, there have been uh, very significant scarring uh, impacts uh, made by the COVID, especially uh, for the Chinese government, actually they have not done any uh, direct income support to the household sector, like in the Western economies. And at the same time, you also have the long-term adjustment in the property sector. And if you look at uh, examples like maybe Japan, in the 1990s, Spain, Ireland in the 2007, I think all this kind of um, household deleveraging, uh, actually it takes a couple of years uh, for, for, for the household sector to get out of the roots. And I think the, also the point uh, about uh, lower rate interest rates, whether it can really uh, revive consumer confidence is that when you have a situation that when the confidence is already very weak and people want to pile up their savings to the bank accounts, um, when you lower the interest rates, actually people would want to save even more mm. when the rates are going down. Mm. So I'm just, well, of course, I think uh, for the current situation right now, maybe the policymakers still are under pressure to do more, but I'm just uh, concerned that the effectiveness of uh, additional easing may not be uh, that strong. So I think at the end of the day, it's really up to the fiscal policy or structural reforms mm. to really try to uh, come up with some uh, options to revive the economy or maybe we just need time for people to uh, the confidence to recover so from what you're saying sorry andrew Okay, go on, sorry, sorry. No, I was going to say from from what you're saying, actually from what you're both saying, that some people are calling for a triple R cut, but even if they were to do that, it, it's not really going to boost confidence. It's not the right um, sort of stimulus. It may be symbolic, but it, it's not going to help. Yeah, no, not that's, uh, yes, but that's the, this is still something that they need to do uh, yeah, before exploring all the options. Yeah. Let, let me add one more thing. It's, I'm reading straight out of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as far as the Chinese economy is concerned. It is as cheerful as that. Uh, I'm looking at my trusty Bloomberg screen here. 13, 13 to 14 continuous months of decreases in housing prices. That's, that's the, the standard 70-city newly built uh, commercial. Okay, and uh, no sign yet of that thing going, going positive. The last one we had, uh, the one for April, it was it was a smaller than one for March, but it was still negative. So if you have more than a year coming up to a year and a half of nothing else but the prices falling, again, that's not uh, that's not great uh, for let's say expectations in inverted commas. I mean, um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, house price uh, house price growth is uh, is slowing. How big a risk, Michelle, is that to the uh, to the economic recovery? 
I think if you look at the month on month data, the data, uh, it is still positive. So that means house prices are, are still stabilizing. Um, in the first quarter, we actually saw a pretty, well, a stronger than expected uh, rebound in the housing sales. But I think the momentum sort of uh, loosened a bit in April. I think it's because the first quarter there was a, a leisure of the pent up demand. And uh, now people, uh, that, that's actually one, one hour of steam already. So it softened again in April. Um, I think the overall situation is that for the housing sales, uh, I think it will probably uh, start to stabilize, especially uh, in the in the top tier cities. Like uh, for example, in the in, in Chengdu, like the the cities that there are still um, a lot of structural demand coming from the population inflows. Uh, I think that there's, there's there's still going to be some uh, steam in that. But I think for the lower tier cities, it will be an entirely different stories. Um, but unfortunately, I think uh, for for the, the in terms of the impact for the economy, I think uh, even ha- if you have a recovery in the sales, I think as for the property developers, which would matter for the investments and the demand for the upstream commodities, uh, I think on that they are still in a deleveraging mindset. Uh, which means that when even when the funding starts to improve, they are still uh, not very keen to take part in the land auctions. Um, the investment sentiment is really weak, and uh, and that will also affect on the local government fiscal revenue. In the first quarter, actually, the local government land revenue still dropped by twenty percent, and we know that it is a very important source of uh, fiscal revenue, which means that that will also have some knock-on impacts on the infrastructure investments. Uh, right now, it is still running pretty strongly, but I think that could also be the uh, part of the headwind. Uh, to the infrastructure investment going ahead if we don't see uh, additional uh, stimulus coming from the policy makers. Okay. Well, Andrew, Andrew, let me ask you about investment overall. It, it slowed to 4 trillion yuan from, uh, in April from 5.3 trillion in March. What was interesting was private sector, um, investment. It grew very, very slowly, just 0.4%. Most of the investment was made by state owned enterprises. There it grew 9.7% year on date. It, it seems to be that show is a, a, a good barometer really of, of how private companies perceive investment prospects in China. But when you look at that, it, it doesn't look great for the future at the moment, does it? Yeah, unless, unless and I don't have, uh, neither have done the homework of taking it bit by bit and also separating out investment by foreign enterprises, separating out investment by purely domestic enterprises and where it is. Uh, it, would have been, it would have been very easy to take out the usual whipping boy. And I said, what the authorities did to the tech sector about a year and a half ago might have reverberated negatively. And it's only recently where the private sector has come back again into the uh, benign spotlight. But then I don't have any real evidence to tell you that's what happens when uh, you, know, you, you, you threaten the private sector, they stop investing. Now, when you don't threaten them, they, they recover. That's, that's, that's a very cheap thing to say because there is really no evidence behind it. But as you say, if you take the private sector, it, it still shows you that the main driving force uh, is, is state-owned enterprises, which at this part of the cycle it should be, basically. Michelle, why, why are private uh, enterprises, private companies so gloomy about investment prospects in China? And what sort of risk is that to the economy? Um, so I think, first of all, on the data, um, the weakness in the private sector was driven a lot by the slump in property investments. 
And I think if you look at the breakdown uh, between private and SOEs and by sectors, and you would see that actually uh, the private non-property investments are not that weak. I think it's still running quite strongly, maybe uh, well, definitely in positive territory, maybe around 5%. Um, and I think probably you will see a different situation uh, that uh, in the manufacturing sector, actually um, a lot of uh, equipment, they are, they are, they actually had a present here because of China's uh, green transition, trying to uh, uh, give a lot of support to the uh, renewable energy sectors uh, and metals uh, and the computer electronics, for example. I, I think they are still running pretty decently. Um, but I think in terms of um, the overall uh, sentiment for the private sector. I think if you look at the stock market, it probably tells you something. Just look at the performance between the SOEs versus the private companies, and I think, um, and and I think when when it comes to the question that oh, what what policy can we do to revive the sector, uh, the private confidence? Uh, I think it's actually no the, no quick fix to that. I think that really re- requires of uh, uh, the structural policies to have more predictable policies from the government, for example. Um, maybe tax cuts, but actually over the last couple of years, the, the Chinese government has already exhausted a lot of space to do uh, more tax cuts. So I think uh, we, we've come to a pretty difficult situation to uh, to really support the private confidence here. So maybe we just need to take time for them to recover as the economy stabilizes. Now, presume, Andrew. Uh, yeah, sorry. Let let just let me cheer you up a little bit further. There are something like eight months, continuous months with declines in industrial profits. Ta-da! Mm. That's not also not very useful. Mm. Yeah, and and uh, well, I suppose that's why it's been uh, uh, being in, uh, reflected in the in the stock market performance um, overall. Let me ask you about something else that stood out for me, Andrew, in this data: the unemployment rates. Now, the urban unemployment rate declined to a 16-month low of 5.2%. However, look at this. The unemployment rate of the population aged 16 to 24 jumped to a record high of 20.4% from 19.6%. That means one in five uh, of young people are unemployed. And it's only going to get worse because 12 million more job uh, graduates are going to hit the job market in 2023. And what's surprising is this rise in youth unemployment has come even after the number of working people fell by more than four, 41 million people over the past three years. But yet uh, the young can't find the jobs to, to make up for that. Andrew, how big a problem is this? Well, I think it's primarily a political problem because uh, this is uh, the future expectations. And, of course, uh, the Communist Party will have to be incredibly sensitive uh, when uh, when it comes to that, given that uh, the economy is supposed to be on a recovery mode. As for the demographic stroke economic reasons that this is happening, whilst at the same time the total number of employment is potentially falling, given that there were 40 million people who were taken out of the market because they retired or they are not joining it, is, of course, is that you have structural difficulties because the unemployment, the youth unemployment may, this again, I don't know the composition, may contain, uh, of course, educated as opposed to generally uh, skilled population. And uh, therefore, we're looking at a structural deficiency in demand as opposed to an overall decline in the demand for labor. Michelle, I, the way I look at this is that sort of youth unemployment, it's a bit of a leading indicator, isn't it? Because if young people are unable to get jobs, don't have income security, 
where's all this consumption recovery going to come from? Where is the confidence um, going to come from um, in the economy? I would have thought that this does have a, a, a big drag on the economy. Yeah, I agree. And um, I think it tells you that, uh, well, when, when the business want to expand, they, they hire people and the young people are the least experienced. So that, that means when uh, they are not, when companies are not very confident about the outlook, then the, the first uh, people that they think about not hiring is the young uh, is the young people, and also unfortunately over the last three years we have the crackdown uh, on the internet sector on the education sectors, and these are also the sectors that uh, a lot of young people would like to uh, enter enter to uh, for the, to develop their future career, and you have these companies um, also the the structural outlook has definitely dampened uh, after the crackdown uh, a few years ago. So that's also not helpful in terms of supporting the the young the youth the youth employment. So putting all these together, I think, well, what the what the government can do is uh, probably ask SOEs to step up or to provide more subsidies uh, for these companies to maybe expand some the um, uh, young talent program to try to solve the uh, unemployment situation. And uh, I think that if uh, things get bad enough, there will definitely be the political willingness to do it, to uh, preserve stability. Let me finish off by asking you both about debt. We've had some data yesterday from the Institute of International Finance. Emerging market debt has hit a record high of over 100 trillion US dollars. That's now a third higher than pre-pandemic levels. Emerging market debt is now 250% of GDP. China's debt to GDP rose to 282% in the first quarter of this year from 273% at the end of 2022. And overall, if you throw in the developed markets, global debt is now 306.3 trillion US dollars. Um, Andrew, how big a problem is this, particularly for China? Does it sort of limit now their ability uh, to provide fiscal stimulus or do they just carry on borrowing and borrowing? Oh, boy, did you did you rub me the wrong way here, Peter, with, with that? Let me start first with the beginning. Both the IIF and the, and, the and the IMF are really retrograde in still producing numbers of the ratio of debt to GDP. It is nonsense. Actually, as an ex-professor of economics, I'll fail all of them. They are dividing a, a number, which is GDP, which is has a time element. This is income per year, effectively. They divide it by debt, which is doesn't have a time component in it. So literally, they're dividing apples with bananas. Please, uh, for anybody that is listening, pay no attention whatsoever okay, to ratios of GDP uh, to, to debt, it means absolutely nothing, even if it is increasing. What they never do, and I try to do it myself, and it is an unending and thankless task, is the service of the debt to GDP. Ah, that is much more different, because you're saying how much I'm paying per annum, okay, uh, or the sum of money necessary to maintain the debt where it is, and of course, reduce it. Still, it has a very funny ratio. I'm very, very cautious on ratios. They have to be bananas with bananas, apples with apples, okay, and not apples with uh, with bananas as this one is. So I'm afraid, yes, it has been a big increase. And my reaction is, is I want to know what will this do to the servicing? Almost definitely it would increase it because we know interest rates are increasing. But I want to know how, how much because not all debt is floating. A lot of it is fixed, in which case the increases in interest rates play no, no role whatsoever. 
So, yes, my reaction to that is I tend to ignore it. Okay. I'm glad I asked you. <laughs> and Michelle, how, how big a problem is this? Because, I mean, if I take Andrew's point, the cost of servicing debt, of course, is going up. And if you look at um, uh, the emerging market debt, about a quarter of emerging market co- uh, countries have debt now, have bonds that are trading in distressed territory with spreads more than a thousand basis points above U.S. Treasuries. So the, the cost is problematic, isn't it? Um. I think uh, Andrew has a valid point. For example, I mean, with regards to uh, the situation in the U.S., um, you take the mortgages. Uh, actually, uh, there are people who have fixed the mortgages rates uh, at 30 years to a couple of years ago, and now they are really enjoying really low interest rates. Mm. Um, but I think with regard to uh, China, I mean, there have always been predictions about uh, a debt crisis going up uh, in Chinese economy, and I think for now, the risk to me is still uh, quite low because, um, of course, I know the situation does not look good. Actually, over the last few years, um, the especially I think for the local governments, um, they have they, they they need to increase their pandemic spending, and at the same time, the revenue is dropping. Not just because the slump in economic activity, but also the correction in the property market, uh, the the land sales also did not look good. So I think they are uh, in a really difficult situation, and that has also knocked on impact on the local government financing vehicles. So remember, I think uh, maybe ten years ago in 2013, uh, maybe the after the uh, four trillion stimulus in 2008, people start to worry about the financial health of the local government financing vehicles. And I think uh, this sort of concerns uh, probably has surveys again recently. But I think what the government is doing right now is that uh, they're still asking uh, the banks to extend the loans to, to these local government financing vehicles, asking the another state entities to uh, support these local government financing vehicles. And uh, my concern is that um, actually maybe the biggest risk to the economy is not an imminent debt crisis uh, triggered by the financial contagion when we have a failure of a local government's financing vehicle. But it is the fact that uh, the system keeps uh, channeling the financial resources to these unproductive uh, infrastructure projects that at the end of the day, it will just bring down the, uh, the return on capital for the whole system. And I think that also ties with why uh, the households uh, they talk, talk about uh, rebalancing the consumption for for years and years. But uh, if you look at the, the households, the, they have high savings and their savings are really invested in these unprofitable projects. So my concern is that uh, under this uh, misallocation of capital, under this, uh, the setup of the system, it just makes the rebalancing to consumption even more challenging for China. Okay. Well, thank you both very much there. You heard Michelle Lam, who is Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Taiwan's largest opposition party, the Kuomintang, has picked Ho Yo E, the mayor of New Taipei City, over Terry Gao, the founder of Foxconn, to be its candidate for presidential elections in January. Joining me now from Taipei is Ross Feingold, who's business development director of SafePro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Um, tell me a little bit about sir, this guy then, and uh, his, his, we, all we know is, or I know is, is the, the mayor of New Taipei City. 
Mayor Ho was a, previously a career police officer uh, when he retired uh, from the police service. He had actually reached uh, very senior roles in Taiwan's police service. Uh, he uh, became a politician. In fact, he at the time, he was recruited by both the Democratic Progressive Party as well as the Chinese Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang. Uh, so I guess at the time, the perception was uh, he was a pretty flexible guy politically. Uh, but he wound up uh, taking a job as, as a uh, deputy mayor to Julie Lun, who Eric Ju, who is now the chairman of the uh, Guomindang. Uh, so for uh, many years during Ju's uh, uh, two terms as mayor of New Taipei, uh, Ho Yo was the deputy. So he sort of learned politics and learned about being a mayor. And then he was elected the mayor in 2018 and reelected by a very, very large margin in 2022. So at least as a mayor of a very large metropolitan area, he he seems to be doing the right things and popular with the voters. So from the moment he was reelected mayor in the local elections last November, uh, he was pretty much the leading candidate to receive the nomination for the uh, for for the presidential election, uh, which will be in January 2024. But the interesting thing there is he didn't come out and say, I want to be the nominee. I want to be president. He was very coy over the last five, six months about this topic and uh, would basically say things like, well, I'll answer the call if the call is made. And uh, it put the party in a tough spot because they knew on the one hand that poll showed uh, he was their their best chance to win the election next January. But on the other hand, he didn't want to come out and say that he wanted the job. So the party, instead of holding a traditional primary where candidates would say, uh, I'm seeking the nomination and the public would vote, uh, they, instead they changed it to a, a draft process where we're going to draft a candidate. And uh, the two people who were being considered were Mayor Ho, as well as Terry Go from Foxconn Honai. And the difference is Terry Go actually said, I want to be president. Mm-hmm. I want the nomination. <laughs> uh, but uh, based on internal, uh, uh, I wouldn't even call it polling. It's more like canvassing of uh, office holders, people in the party who are elected office holders, whether that's in Taiwan's legislature or uh, heads of municipal governments around Taiwan, as well as some polling of the public, uh, it's, it indicated what we knew six months ago, which was that uh, Mayor Ho was the best chance that the party has to beat the DPP's candidate, so, so who what, is what William Lai, the, the current vice president. What were the factors that made them choose uh, Mr. Ho over Terry Go? Well, like I said, uh, uh, basically polling, uh, polling of the public, as well as asking uh, uh, elected office holders from the party, uh, who do you think could win? Uh, who could win next January? Uh, and the consistent answer seems to be that uh, people think how was the party's best hope. But he is behind in the polls, isn't he? If you um, that, uh, that's com- correct. If you compare him with the DPP um, candidates, he's about nine percentage points below. Although Terry Go would have performed even worse, so he's still got a way to go, hasn't he, to to make up that deficit? 
That's correct. Polls have consistently showed that uh, current Vice President William Lai is ahead in the polls and uh, Ho Yoi, as well as the third candidate, who's a former mayor of Taipei City, not New Taipei, but Taipei, uh, Ko Wenja of the Taiwan People's Party. Uh, Both Ho and Ko consistently poll behind William Lai. Uh, So they got a they got a I'd say it's it's uh, it's going to be tough. Not impossible, uh, and there's still time, uh, but it's going to be tough. Uh, William Lyer, in his own right, is, is fairly popular as well. What's Ho Yui's position on relations with Beijing? Well, that goes to the point I mentioned earlier that he's consistently being a coy person. He doesn't like to take a, a strong position on just about anything. Uh, but but being a, a politician in the Kuomintang, most likely he's going to return to what is popularly called the 1992 consensus. And he'll say that uh, uh, we're the Republic of China. They're the People's Republic of China. Uh, I'm against Taiwan independence, which would be, again, it would be a typical Kuomintang position to take. Okay. Now, um, former UK Prime Minister Liz Truss um, is in Taiwan at the moment, causing a bit of a storm. She's the first former British Prime Minister to visit Taiwan since Margaret Thatcher almost three decades ago in a speech in Taipei. She said, it's completely irresponsible for European nations to wash their hands of Taiwan. The only choice we have is whether we appease and accommodate or we take action to prevent conflict. And she urged the West to not work with China. Um, And she also called um, for an economic NATO. Um, First of all, does anyone care what uh, what Liz Truss uh, says or thinks these days? Apparently, the Taiwan government, which invited her here, and uh, must have given her a speaking fee because I don't think she does this for free. There was news a few weeks ago she she was paid sixty five thousand pounds to make a speech in India. So I'd be really surprised if she didn't get in that neighborhood or even more to make a speech here in Taiwan. But uh, no, no one cares around the world. Look, people in Europe are not going to stop what they're doing or change their policies towards Taiwan uh, simply because uh, Liz Truss. the 49-day prime minister made a speech in Taiwan. And the notion about Europe, you know, Washington, Washington's hands of Taiwan are not doing anything. I mean, that's that's a bit ridiculous because uh, European Union countries have been engaging much, much more with Taiwan in the last few years than they've ever had in the past. Uh, that doesn't mean they're going to change their one China policies, but members of parliament, uh, even deputy ministers uh, from many European countries have been coming to Taiwan. They're heavily courting Taiwan investment. They're including uh, Taiwan in kind of multilateral statements saying, uh, you know, we, we want uh, stability in the Taiwan Strait. We oppose unilateral changes to the status quo. Uh, so it's not really clear what her point was other than uh, a, she has been trying to reinvent herself as, as a China critic over the last six, six months. So this is just one part of that. Now, the Chinese embassy called her visit a dangerous political stunt. It said the visit will do nothing but harm to the UK. Will it damage China-UK relations? Probably not. Uh, I think I think China also recognizes that she's not a part of the government. She has no influence on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak or his policies. Uh, but but it's just the the idea of a, a former head of government visiting, and and China will will it's kind of like what happened with Nancy Pelosi visiting. We'll say, well, why didn't the executive uh, stop that? Right? Why didn't President Biden stop Nancy Pelosi? And then in America, we would say, uh, but but that's a member of Congress. The president can't stop her. 
from traveling. And the same here. Uh, Rishi Sunak can't stop uh, a member of parliament from traveling, but China will, will throw them all together and just say, well, the government should have stopped this. Mm. Well, China is obviously going to be in focus this weekend at the G7 Leaders Summit. President Biden's heading there. One of the things he's been talking about is an investment ban uh, on certain industries investing in China. That seems to be gaining some support uh, from the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on, on his way to uh, uh, to Hiroshima. He was talking about, about that. So do you think this is something that's on the cards? And if so, what what effect is that going to have? I think we're looking at outbound investment reviews and possible bans by a number of countries, uh, whether they agree formally to that uh, this week remains to be seen. But it's certainly something the United States has been looking at. And uh, it, conceptually, it's it, it's a new thing for some countries, such as the United States, to have outbound investment va- va- bans on your own industries, your your own companies, your own private equity funds, uh, reviewing where they invest around the world. Previously, at least in the Western economies, there was only reviews on inbound investment flows and maybe banning investments in certain industries, banning uh, uh, military or government associated companies from certain countries like China, making certain investments or buying certain property uh, near military facilities, for example. Uh, But the, the outbound investment review, it's a new concept. But I think uh, given the realities of relations with China and concerns about business, doing business in China, this is going to become a reality. Now, one of the consequences of these debt ceiling negotiations going on in the U.S. is that President Biden has shortened his trip to the the G7 in Japan. He was going to go and visit Australia and also Papua New Guinea, where he was going to meet with Pacific Island leaders there. Um I'm wondering, Ross, this is a little bit sad, isn't it? Because in some ways, well, first of all, Papua New Guinea, they they wouldn't normally see a U.S. president um, in their country. But the U.S. has been trying for a while now to re-engage with uh, the Asia-Pacific region. Does this damage its efforts to, to do that? It's certainly going to hurt. Uh, this has been such a hot topic in, in, in the last year or two. You know, competition for influence in the Pacific Island countries between uh, China on the one hand, United States, Australia, lesser extent, France, and the UK. On the other hand, uh, the United States did host a, a summit at the White House of the Pacific Island countries' leaders last September, announced a lot of initiatives. But, but the consistent criticism uh, is you, you're not here, and when you're, you do come, you stay brief. And this is just going to feed into that. It's not the end of the world, but it's definitely going to uh, hurt. I, I think it's going to hurt the feelings. You know, some of these leaders were traveling a very long distance to get to Papua New Guinea and cost their governments a lot of money to, to fly from you know, fairly remote locations uh, of these various countries. Uh, so I, I'd say it's it's not the end of the world, but, but for some of these countries, I think it's just a, a feeling of, more of the same that you know again you're you're not here and or you only stay briefly you, you lecture us a lot uh and you tell us not to do business with china and china often is here right china's mm-hmm. if not not necessarily xi jinping uh, but their government officials and their companies are just consistently on the ground in the pacific island countries ross thank you very much indeed that's ross feingold who is business development director at SafePro group Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Sam Perverse, CEO at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Staten Advice. Bye for now. Money Talk. 